Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for those with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day. You might say it's a Bible study in bite-sized form. This episode is Christmas, a Divine Counteroffensive. What would possess any human being to break into prison? Now, maybe break in is a bit over the top, but what about stealing somebody's identity and positioning yourself to be arrested and thrown into prison for all of his offenses, especially during a large-scale war? I would love to have been a fly on the wall of that strategy session. Gentlemen, we need a volunteer for a secret mission. Raise a hand if you're willing to volunteer. It's a counteroffensive. Several hands go up. You will assume a secondary identity. All the hands stay up. You will break into an enemy fortress. A few hands drop. It will encourage your countrymen, and you will organize a revolt. Hands stay up. And if you're caught, you will most likely be executed on the spot. No trial is likely. And oh, by the way, this fortress we speak of is Auschwitz. All hands drop. All except one. The man who raises his hand, steps forward, and volunteers is Witold Pilecki. Pilecki was a major in the Polish army until the Nazis invaded and overtook Poland in late 39. At that time, the nation split, ideologically at least, into those who became Nazi puppets and the resistance, those who refused to bow a knee to Nazi ideology and rule. Pilecki became an intelligence officer in the resistance. Pilecki volunteered and assumed the identity of a man known to be sought by the Nazis for his political views, and allowed himself to be captured and imprisoned. Within days, he graced the gates of Auschwitz with 1,800 other political prisoners. And the way history tells the story, the resistance officer is the only one to have entered intentionally. At this point in time, Auschwitz was used primarily for political prisoners, prior to the arrival and genocide of 11 million Jews, notwithstanding victims of other social and ethnic groups. Within the first month, he got his first report out on the treatment of prisoners, but it took nearly six months to get it to Polish leadership exiled in London. It doesn't appear that he planned it this way, but he beat most Jews to Auschwitz, and as the Nazis began the genocide of the Jews in the gas chambers, Pilecki had a front-row seat and reported the atrocities through radios that had been smuggled in piece by piece, not to mention written communiques that were smuggled out. If not for the efforts of Pilecki and other Polish prisoners, the Allies would not have had any first-hand intelligence regarding the genocide at Auschwitz. Pilecki spent nearly three years in Auschwitz, eyeball to eyeball with evil. He endured lice, starvation, bouts with pneumonia and typhus before escaping. Michael Shudrich, the chief rabbi of Poland, said that Pilecki was, quote, an example 
of inexplicable goodness at a time of inexplicable evil. End quote. While we need to applaud the heroic and selfless acts of a man like this, I'm still left with the question what possesses a man to volunteer for this mission? When it would have been easier to hide, the man leaves the comfort of home, subjects himself to the rules and regulations of his enemy, conducts a counteroffensive mission under their nose and under penalty of death, and his intelligence or his body of work in prison is responsible for many eventually being set free from Auschwitz. So I ask again, what possesses a man to do this? At the same time, isn't this the story of Jesus? The story of Christmas? A divine counteroffensive against an evil empire? Let's look at Christmas, but not primarily from the Gospels, not from the Law and the Prophets of the Old Testament. Have you ever looked at Christmas from the book of Revelation? Buckle up, it's about to get a little interesting. Let's dive into Revelation at chapter 12. This is a crazy chapter. It's almost as if the Apostle John had some day-old pizza with too much garlic butter the night before, and had one of those dreams that takes little snippets from multiple situations and mashes them together. And when you wake up, you're wondering how it is that you played football in the Super Bowl alongside your grandfather in 1948, wearing the newest Nike cleats, and you drive away from the game in your new hybrid vehicle while drinking Ovaltine and listening to Little Orphan Annie on the radio so you can get your last clue for your secret decoder ring. And as if things couldn't get any more weird, you stop your hybrid at the edge of the parking lot and you pick up your grandchildren, each one of them dressed as Ralphie, in his pink bunny suit from A Christmas Story. Now how's that for a bad pizza dream? This is how John's visions read to me when I read them too fast. But if you take time and break it down, it does make complete sense. One possible error people make when approaching Revelation is to think that, as a book of prophecy, it's all about future events. Not true with regard to Revelation 12, which is historical in nature, but from a spiritual perspective. In short, it's about war, spiritual war. It's the history of the spiritual attack humanity has been under since Genesis 3. It records the devil's rage and vengeance, an attempted coup, and an all-out assault on the innocent and the most vulnerable, a baby, and anyone who wants to follow Jesus. It also records snapshots of victory and angelic celebration. And while hitting the highlights of history, it's a bit mixed up chronologically, in that bad pizza dream kind of way. Disclaimer, a short podcast like this may not be the best place for digging into the book of Revelation, but we're going to take a swing at it. Here we go. Look at verse 4, as well as 7 through 12, which record a battle in heaven between Satan, or also mentioned as the dragon, after his attempted coup, he was cast out, and it's followed by an angelic worship set celebrating the event. Now keep in mind that if Satan is doing his thing in Genesis 3, then this event predates creation. 
And when the sore loser hits earth, verse 12 reads, Terror will come on the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing he has little time left. And this is the snapshot in Revelation 12 that records Satan and his demons being cast out of heaven. He loses his first military offensive. Now, if we go back and look at verses 1 through 6, which records heaven launching its counteroffensive, and I realize it may seem kind of odd that these are inverted, but this is the way it's recorded. It records Jesus being born to save the world and quite literally rule or shepherd the world. We'll dig into that in a moment. A quick side note here. There's an interesting word study to do here in the Greek, and I don't have the time to elaborate on it now, but I've included some of the particulars in the show notes that you can get to at somethingtognawon.buzzsprout.com. You can get that in the show notes there. In short, this word rule has more to do with the manner a shepherd would care for his herd than any type of political or military rule over people, which the Greek language draws a significant distinction. Okay, back to verses 1 through 6. And using the imagery of a dragon, he stands, quote, in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. But the child was taken away. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is destined to shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne, end quote. It's widely accepted that this is a clear reference to Jesus coming to earth in the form of a man, from fetus to infant to toddler to child to teen to young adult to man. This verse is the parentheses or the brackets between which the gospel rests. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happen between the birth mentioned here and Jesus' ascension. Christmas on one end and the ascension on the other. The record of Jesus' birth here becomes a divine, behind enemy lines, counteroffensive that lasted 33 years and began with the birth of a baby in the company of sheep herders. And just as an angelic choir celebrated after the casting of Satan out of heaven, they celebrate in overwhelming fashion the victory in the fields of Bethlehem with the least likely group of people shepherds. One last reference in the chapter worth mentioning. Verse 17 takes a look into the future, from Christ forward to us now, and it says, And the dragon was angry at the woman, and declared war against the rest of her children. And who are the rest of her children? Keep on reading. All who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Christ's arrival in a Bethlehem manger was a calculated counteroffensive, a divine move in a spiritual war. So often Christmas is portrayed as a soft and gentle, peaceful time where good feelings and angelic choirs, golden gifts, and general joy and happiness abound. And certainly you can find those elements in the scriptures. But Revelation 12 doesn't paint it that way. It is war. And if you reread the gospel account, you'll find those elements of war and conflict. Jesus assumes the identity of a human being. 
broke into the prison of humanity. He was a child that survived a hit squad under the orders of King Herod. He escaped to Egypt, spent the better part of his life dodging assassination attempts by the Pharisees, and eventually he's captured and killed for socio-political gain, at least in the minds of the Pharisees. And what would possess him to do this? It may seem an odd passage to read at Christmas, but look at the Apostle Paul's perspective in Philippians 2, 6-8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position as a slave, or can we say a prisoner here? and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus himself expands on his purpose behind the bars of earth when he reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's in Luke 4. In short, this is Christmas, that Jesus set aside his freedom, his comfort, the life of a divine ruler, an eternally secure throne, and voluntarily became a prisoner in a world of ignorant, ungrateful, hateful, and sinful people. But unlike Paletsky, Jesus didn't only come to free prisoners. He came to heal and to give hope and to bring us peace, all under the penalty of death. That first night in the barn, behind enemy lines, baby Jesus is surrounded by shepherds. A necessary but nasty occupation, often looked down upon in the socioeconomic pecking order of the time. And frankly, they stink. There's no way they're getting into that local hospital. No nurse in her right mind would let that crew into the maternity wing. In the field, day and night, sleeping with the herd, stepping in who knows how much dung, hurting, carrying, poking, prodding, sweating, defending ignorant little furballs, and who knows what their bathing schedule was like. I'm guessing the average American long-haul truck driver showers more frequently. And who are these shepherds? Usually, the youngest member of the family, like King David was. And who is it that greets Jesus? It's not the king, not the governor, not the politicians, not the ruling class. Not the Israeli Defense Force or resistance fighters, but those imprisoned on the low end of the socioeconomic pecking order. His eventual ministry would mirror this. This is who he gravitated to the Samaritan woman at the well, the lepers, the demon possessed or oppressed, those caught in sin. His disciples would consist of a grubby, hot-headed fisherman like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, an IRS agent, a political renegade, and a thief and a traitor, to name a few, all of whom, except for Judas, eventually assumed the title of shepherd, but in a spiritual sense, looking after sheep like you and me that Jesus has set free. 
solidifying this term of shepherd in his ministry and recorded mostly in the book of John, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, John 10:11. It's a beautifully paradoxical thing, really. A spiritual war from the beginning being won by a shepherd instead of a dragon, not a general. A counteroffensive being led by a shepherd who doesn't enter this world asserting his divinity, but embracing his humanity in the prison of earthly life as nothing more than a helpless baby, surrounded by his type of people, a bunch of sheep herders. And again, I ask, what would possess someone to do this? And the answer is ultimately very simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 The message of Christmas is that a Savior, the Great Shepherd, has come. He's injected himself into the spiritual battle of this life to set you free, because he loves you. He loves humanity. The spiritual battle is for your soul. And make no mistake about the intensity of Revelation 12, verse 17. Satan is raging against God and you. But make no mistake about it. God's intensity and his love for you is greater still. And you are loved. You are worth it. You are important enough for Jesus to leave his secure and peaceful place in heaven so that you could be saved and set free. This is the Christmas gift, and this Christmas gift is free for the taking. All you've got to do is accept it. What a beautiful way to respond to the Christmas story, surrendering your life to Christ. If you need to do that today, if you feel him tugging on your heart, that this is something that you need to do, and you've known for a long time that you need to, but today's the day. Would you pray this with me? Jesus, thank you for loving me enough to come and save me. I know I'm a sinner, and I accept you and thank you for dying on the cross to pay the price for my sin. Please come into my life and set me free. Amen. I promise you, he hears that prayer. And if you prayed that prayer, please reach out to me through Facebook. And just, just let me know. Let somebody know. Share that with somebody. As I wrap up this episode, I want to acknowledge that I've spent considerable time here talking about the dynamic of spiritual war and conflict behind Christmas. And some of you may really feel this intensify this season in a tangible and practical way, whether you just prayed that prayer or you prayed that prayer 30 years ago. But one of the other titles Jesus has that's part of the Christmas gift, going all the way back to Isaiah 9, is that of Prince of Peace. He came to win a battle, not only to set us free, not only to bring healing, but it brings us peace. Remember his words later in his ministry, Peace I leave you, my perfect peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, 
nor let it be afraid. And the Amplified Version phrases it this way, Let my perfect peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. That's in John 14, 27, in the Amplified Version. If salvation is the ultimate Christmas gift, let his peace be the ultimate stocking stuffer this season. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Nod. Merry Christmas.